another one of these? <laughs> We're still going. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm Stan the Man. I'm Evil J. <laughs> and I'm Shoddy. And we're on part 57 of uh, Death's discography. <laughs> it's going to end up being that. <laughs> yeah, we lied on the first one, right? We said three parts. Yeah. Yeah. We're, getting, we're already too, at four. It's too good. It's too good. Yeah. It might, it might be 72. Who knows? <laughs> Jason keeps on getting these awesome interviews, though. That's a thing. Yeah, I don't know why, dude. I know you asked me the other day, like, oh, did you get an interview with Paul for Human? And I was like, no, I don't. Why didn't I do that? <laughs> so then I was like, well, fuck. I'll, why not I try? He was down. So, so yeah, that's, that's what we got for this one. We got Human, the big boy. And uh, then it'll be, we got two interviews. Got an interview with Paul, Paul Masvidal, who played on Human uh, from Cynic and all that. And then Matt Harvey. From everything gruesome and fucking exhumed and a bunch of other bands, but he's just like the death scholar, the death expert. Like he knows death. Yeah, he should have been in that band, but <laughs> he should have been, which he is now in this doing this Left to Die project and Death to All. He's done a, so much shit with death. So like honestly, he was one of my favorite ones to talk to because he knows that shit in and out. So definitely nerded out about death quite a bit. So that's that's what we got for this one. Nice. We'll see. We'll see what happens for the next ones. I think it'll just be one more part, but. Dude, I have a feeling we're going to have probably like five more parts, honestly. <laughs> like I have reached out to a couple people that didn't respond. Watch, they're going to respond. It'll be, it'll be 10 parts. Dude, it's okay. So it's not a bad thing though. I could listen to this shit. Other people talk about death. Us talk about death. I can listen to it for days. Oh yeah. No, me too. Yeah. I mean, people seem to like it. You know, I mean, hey, let us know if it's weird. I know like we're talking about one album interviews. I don't know if it works. We never did a format like that, but. Little insider secret. Yeah, we've already recorded these for you guys. I don't know. It's a little behind the curtain, mm-hmm. pulling the curtain back for you guys right now. These were already recorded. We're just coming back to add these interviews in. Why mm-hmm. would you tell them, dude? That ruins the magic. It's like fucking exposing in. how all the shit works at Disney. Let people in, you know? They want to know what's behind I, the curtain. I, I Whatever. I guess, like I said, ruin the magic. <laughs> so, anyways, I guess we'll jump in. Do we want to? Yeah. We can act like we're jumping in to what we were just talking That's- about. Or we could just tell I mean, them up I'll front. talk about it again. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Redo Let's it. Let's go to human. <laughs> I'm down. Let's do it. Suicide march. 
All right. All right. Let's go to the the big boy. Yeah. Who men? Oh, man. <laughs> 91. One year later. Yeah, one year later. Uh, we weren't that, fucking around. New full That's pretty lineup. Fucked up. Yeah, new full lineup. Man, what a lineup it is. <laughs> Steve DiGiorgio, one of the all-time great all bassists. Times. Yep. And then Paul and Sean from Cynic. Yeah. Number two. God damn. <laughs> number two for me. All right. Number one for me. Yeah, number two <laughs> slash number one. <laughs> Shoddy. Uh, one second. It's three for me, boys. Okay. Three. Okay. Human was three for me. I was going to say, if it's below three, then you're fucked in the head. <laughs> no, you, you got to be... Yeah, no. It's three for me, boys. Stan, I honestly was wondering with you. I didn't know. I just... So... I don't know. Okay. Um, I got into it a couple years ago, but it was kind of a sleeper for a while. Me too. This one, yeah. But... Go, it's been a while since I listened to it, but it's been a fun fucking last couple of weeks listening to this album again. Yeah, dude. I think it was the last album I got into from them. Like, I always liked it, but it was sat in the middle, and I just always was either like, I'm going to go later or I'm going to go earlier. And Human just like, it didn't do it for me for a long time. And yeah, then no, one I'd, day, same way. Like, wait a minute, what the fuck was I thinking? You know? Yeah, dude, this is so ridiculous how good this album is. When you actually sit down and pick apart it, the fucking the groove. And the flow of the whole album from start to finish is just insane. Dude. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have anything else to say. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I just, mean, it's, like, it's the start of I everything it, I, it's that I love in music. It's 110%. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's There's, it's the start of everything that I love in music. All the prog, the, the technical elements, the speed, it's all here. Yeah. It, it, it is, but I love it how they keep it so raw mm-hmm. oh yeah and so yeah. death metal at the same time like could yep. have easily did some weird shit with this lineup yes you know but they keep it like at the roots I mean, and they, they do, just did it so they well they do do weird shit though I mean like oh, Cosmic no, no, they do, C, but... the beginning of lack of comprehension like it's just <laughs> I, wait, Shadi have you ever listened to Focus by Cynic no it's a weird fucking album yeah oh okay and then like it could have got get, weird have you ever listened to the demos yeah but the demos I guess with the with the rough vocals, no, definitely listen to that for okay. this album. You guys are probably both like that, yeah. Not just like the vocoder and all that it has actual like death vocals and stuff or death growl <laughs> vocals, you know. Oh, the demos are mm-hmm. great. The regular album's great too. But anyways, yeah, side yeah, note. Yeah. But yeah, it gets weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Stan, yeah. you made the right fucking point there. That, that's what I love about it too, is because I think this is the last album that really is still full death metal it with is. the experimentation, but it's still so death metal. You know, the vocals are still low. The riffs are still there. You know, it gets proggy. It gets experimental, 100%. But, like, it's death metal. It's heavy to me. It's it's goddamn perfect. Know. That's what I, it is. <laughs> I think it's more I think it's more technical than the normal death, and that's why I'm laughing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It <laughs> is. You're thinking of you two being like, "Oh, yeah, fuck." This is because I'm like, "You guys are idiots. You don't listen to me. I'm trying to show you shit that's like this. It's just a little bit faster." And you're like, "That's too fast for me. I can't yeah. understand. I can't comprehend. I need caveman metal. I got so a lack like, of comprehension about it. I'm sorry." Yeah, you do. Dude, the beginning of that song is so fucked up. I remember seeing (laughs) that music video, like, I don't know. It was like a couple years ago. I just scrolled through YouTube metal, and then I was like, what is this? And then it started, and I was like, this is kind of fucked up. And then all of a sudden, it kicked in, and I was like, holy shit. And then I listened to the whole album after that. Top five death song, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it is. Don't think. (laughs) Okay, okay. I'm just telling you it is. Okay, you're telling me it is. For me, dude, it's top fucking five. Like, and I think that's the best song to talk about from this album because, like, you listen to it and, like, 
the riffing is cool, but like honestly, what makes it cool is like the fucking drums and the bass. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. Dude. Like, you if you just isolated the, the guitar, don't get me wrong, great, but like then you throw in the bass, then you throw in the drums. It's what makes it sound like complex. Dude, it's a it's wall really of sound. Complex. Yeah, a wall of fucking sound coming at you. And that's what happens album. like half, you know throughout half of the album. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, no disrespect to Chuck, but like I probably could have threw some riffs on this album, and like fucking Sean and Steve could have made them sound sick, like. Cause they're I'm doing so much cool you. shit, dude. That that's a yeah. Going back and listening to this now, Sean Reinhardt is like a god. <laughs> yeah, dude. What the fuck dude, is he doing? He's like probably. I want to do my favorite drummers again because he's dude, number I, one on my list. Stan, I completely agree. I don't. I mean, this I'm not guy is him so at, fucked up. I'm not throwing him at number one, but he is fucking amazing. I wanted oh, to ask like, you, Shotty, about it because since you're dude, the actual it's, drummer it's, here, seriously, it's next the level. Like the drumming from here on now on death is legitimately next the level yeah. the entire time. And it's just fucked for 1991, like what was going on on the drums back then. So I don't I, know. Yeah, all I'm not taking anything away from any of the Bill, Gene, any of them. But like no, this guy's fucking. No, but you're absolutely right, Jason. The way he plays with Steve, and the way they play to like play off each other is amazing. And then well, you and- just put these ridiculously talented guitarist on top of it. Mm-hmm. Well, Stan, most of the time they're playing together is the is like the oh, reason yeah, why yeah. it sounds so solid is because it's legitimately they Yeah. They do talk yeah. about it on the DVD like Steve like he could he he was able to like play off the music like so like some he knew exactly what to do in the right parts like you know to step aside with you know have the guitarist do their thing but then to suddenly come in with like Sean and do this really cool <laughs> thing. Yeah. And it's just 
it makes the flow of the album, the rhythm section. Oh, yeah, it really does. Like I said, like there's if you listen to it, there's a few different tracks where you're like, take out, just put a standard drummer in there, standard bassist in there, and you've got an okay song. Put those in there, and it's next level. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everything. Yeah. And I think that's what's so cool about it is because you can listen to this album over and over again. It's almost like there's always something more to listen to. And I could say mm-hmm. that about another album, but I'll stop. You know, I'll save that. But because there's because of that, because you're listening to the riffs, you're listening to the drums, the bass. I mean, there's always something going on. But at the same time, for all that technicality, it's like catchy as fuck. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like Very- overly technical. It's always still catchy. It's very accessible. Yeah, accessible. To, yeah. I mean, think of just song, the, the first song, Flattening of Emotions. The, the you know, the impact that Chuck gives you with his vocals right before the fucking solo starts, about two <laughs> minutes in. It's like, it's, if you don't want to listen to the rest of the album after just hearing that, we're talking two and a half <laughs> minutes into the fucking song, then you deserve a smack in the face. Because, yeah. like, <laughs> I was hard there. <laughs> I was ready to go. Like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And again, we're not we're two and a half minutes into the first song and I was like, "Fuck yeah." So Then it goes into suicide machine. Come yeah, on. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Oh. It's hard to not put it higher, but I have my reasons. So, wait, where did you put it again? Four, three, three, three. 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 Yeah. yeah, to trace, trace. Yeah, dude, all the way through, and it's only like thirty something minutes. Like it's like barely over half an hour. I know it, it it's, ends it's, and it's just like yeah, it come ends, on. and then I'm like, wait, what the fuck? Yeah, and then <laughs> I gotta go. Yeah, which yep. is beautiful. I love that about it. Like you, <laughs> you can play that fucking thing so many times. <laughs> uh, so, dude, so. That was the other thing I was going to say. This is the only one where, like, so I kind of, don't ask me why, but I kind of did, uh, I did 
the first four together, then I would go back and listen to them. Mm-hmm. Like I, I broke it up in halves, and then uh-huh. I would did the last three together. But yeah. this one, I would just, I would loop it, like <laughs> yeah. just go right back to the start. Like, <laughs> yeah, dude, <laughs> it was hard to go back and like listen to the other three. Yeah, when you get the vacant planets and it's heavy as fuck, and then oh, dude, mm-hmm. yeah, you're gonna play it again. I, I there's so, hey, a cool um on YouTube, there's a cool documentary about Sean Reinhardt after he died. I forget the name of it, but he's one of the Megadeth drummers, and he does does like drummer interviews, and he talks to all the different death drummers, and you know, anyways, he, and it's got a bunch of interviews with Sean and shit, and and Sean said he finished the drums for this album in two and a half days. Yeah, so he had Holy eight days shit. left for fucking drums. So then they wrote Cosmic <laughs> Sea, and then they threw in fucking God of Thunder, unplanned. Like what? Yeah, are you kidding me? Oh, wow. I don't know, man. I mean, that's just nuts. Great lineup. Yeah. So yeah. this. <clears throat> this entire discography that we're talking about is uh, just over five hours, five hours and one minute if you take out all the bonus songs. And I somehow, over the course of a weekend, got my nine-month pregnant wife to listen to the entire <laughs> thing while in the car doing, you know, errands. I mean, we're talking, you know, this is the course of, you know, you know Friday, Saturday, Wait, Sunday. The whole discography? I mean, for the most part, yeah. Oh, like, wow. I literally would just start well, it from the beginning. Get her downstairs and well, I want to know her top. <laughs> well, no, well, I guess what, what I was, what I'm trying to say is, is she tolerated it and she found nothing wrong with it the entire time. Normally, when stuff is on, she'll be like, turn this off yeah. or like, yeah, can we yeah. put it on something else? I asked her multiple times. I'm like, honey, would you like to change it? No, this is fine. I was like, okay. <laughs> 20 minutes later, honey, do you want to change it? No, this is fine. Wow. Okay. So I don't know what it. I don't know if it's a little bit more accessible, even though it. But yeah, I. Don't, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. I don't know how, but she legitimately somehow listened to the enti- entire discography That's over amazing. the course of a weekend. That's awesome. I mean, she, she would have told she, you to turn off human. I would have left her at the side of the road <laughs> nine months pregnant. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it would have. Yeah, the emergency exit would have the door and dude kicked out. Yeah, hold on to the dog and sent her flying. But yeah. Mm. Anyway, so yeah. Just, Interesting point. All right. Well, anything else on this one? Probably talk about it all night, really. Oh, God yeah, damn. Yeah, we could, but... <laughs> we got more. Yeah. Yep, yep. All right. Well, uh, if not, then, like I said, Matt Harvey, we talked about this album. We talked about all the albums. He goes through it all. He really dove into the lyrics. We talked about, like, Chuck's trademark riffing, his history with death, all that shit. So, honestly, that fucking Matt's, like, one of the... Probably one of the coolest people in metal. Like every time I talk to him, I'm just like, this guy's the best. Like he's just a fan who's in a band. So mm-hmm. super fun interview. Definitely listen to it. And then we'll be back with uh, the last three. Mm-hmm. I'm staying the man. I'm Evil J. And I'm Shadi. You guys stay fucking metal.
I guess let's just start back, uh, start right at the beginning, like when you first heard Death. When was that, and what was the first song or demo or album? What was the first one that caught you? Um, I first heard Death. It must have been, I think, sometime in 1988. I was, you know, I guess either 12 or 13. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And the first thing I heard was Screen Buddy Gore. And um, I remember seeing the cassette, you know, as one did back then. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, Tower Warehouse or wherever the heck it was. And uh, I just remember I was like, well, this cover looks awesome. And the band has a song called Regurgitated Guts. So <laughs> i like, I have to hear this. Like, I mean, I got to buy it. <laughs> yeah, and um, I remember not really quite understanding it. You know what I mean? I was like, well, it's kind of like creator but i'm not quite sure like there's something different about it that i can't really put my finger on yeah um and then a couple months later a friend of ours this guy mark smith who played on my friend's hockey team um, <laughs> he had leprosy the the cassette not the disease and um, <laughs> and i heard that and then it kind of clicked because the sound quality was a little bit better and it was a little bit more discernible and i was like oh and i grabbed the the screen buddy gore tape and listen to it again and i was like okay now i'm sort of beginning to get that there's something a little bit more extreme going on here than like you know persecution mania or you know terrible certainty or you know some of the records that i was into at the time yeah uh, and then <clears throat> it was kind of between you know those two records and like morbid tales and, and pleasure to kill and a couple of other ones that i started kind of realizing that you know, my tastes were kind of going in a different direction, <laughs> you know, a heavier, a more extreme direction. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with those, you know, trying to learn the songs and stuff. And, you know, by the time Spiritual Healing came out in uh, 90, I was like really, really, really excited about it. Oh, okay. Right, right. That's cool. So it was kind of like, it was like the first actual death metal you had heard too, like beyond just the first death, it was the first death metal band you had heard and everything. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it kind of depends. There's a lot of sort of, you know, argument about what's the first death metal band or whatever. I mean, yeah, I would consider Morbid Tales and Emperor's Return to be death metal albums, and I was already into that. Oh, I um, got you. But, I mean, that's, you know, it's really a question of semantics. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay. But that's it definitely cool, made a, a humongous impression on me, yeah. Yeah, that's cool, too, and that's like... uh yeah, it took you a minute. Like you had to go back over to leprosy and then come back to it. Like I was like, uh, I was so it was so much different for me. Like I remember hearing Sp- Scream Bloody Gore too, and, and and like liking it, but it was the same kind of thing. I was I was older at the point when I heard it, but it was funny for me. Like I had to get into the later death first, you know, and then and then just now I'm like, I feel like I've declined or something, and now I, I it's like now I love the first two so much, you know. <laughs> You've devolved. Yeah, I've devolved or something like that. <laughs> But they're a cool band like that because you can kind of like you can kind of come in where you want to, you know, if you want something overly technical or accessible, you can start with something else. Or if you want something primitive, you know, you can go back to the beginning. I mean, I I agree. It's really they they occupy sort of the interesting place in metal and that they kind of have like two or three separate band bases and people love the band for totally different reasons. Yeah. you know, there's some people that love individual thought patterns and symbolic and sort of tolerate the first two. And then there's lots of people that love the first three or four or maybe even just the first couple and sort of despise the later stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. um, so, you know, it's just a, it's an interesting band that uh, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And especially with, 
you know, Chuck not being here anymore, that kind of makes it more, uh, people are more passionate about it and it's sort of more romanticized, you know, because yeah. the story ended in the middle, you know? Right, right. So when it was, when it was changing like that, like along the way, like since, since, since you were there for the first two and then like you said, you were all in by the time you heard uh spiritual, you, you know, what did, how did you feel about like the changes at the time when they were happening? Like in style. Um, when I, when human came out, I guess I must've been 15, 16. Cause it was 91. Right. Yeah. And I remember, you know, by that time I was more into like carnage and, you know, carcass terrorizer, uh, unseen terrorist, sore throat and stuff like that. And I remember going to a party and somebody had, uh, human and they're like hey man do you want to hear the new death and they handed me the cassette and i was like i didn't really like the people whose party like my buddy taught me into going i was like these people are fucking lame yeah. i didn't really want to be there and i remember looking at the cassette and the logo had changed the inverted cross wasn't really inverted and there was no drippy blood yeah and i remember saying like oh this is for faggots <laughs> i mean that's how people talk about yeah. then now yeah. i guess i would say this is for wimps or posers or whatever yeah and I just like fucking chucked the cassette and the guy like didn't catch it and it hit the wall. And I was like, fuck you, man, this is my fucking party. And I was like, good, I'm leaving anyway. And um, <laughs> oh, that's pretty so good. I was really, I took it really personally, you know, because Death was like one of my favorite kind of formative bands. And, you know, there was a lot of that going around in the 90s where, you know, metal bands that really meant a lot to the listeners. Like, it seemed like the listeners cared more about it than the people in the bands themselves. Well, I mean, you're and like that I, age, too. It's like it's almost like it it's like it defines you. You know what I mean? Like whatever you're yeah. listening to. So when someone does when there's a change like that, I, I totally get it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I came back to it a couple of years later and I was like, holy shit, this album is great because I really liked the cynic demos. I wasn't crazy about the record, but I loved the demos. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I came back to it and I was like, well, if I think of it as kind of like a half cynic album and a half death album, then I realized that it's like a total fucking masterpiece. And, um, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, my buddy that I started Exhume with, Cole Jones, he and I were talking about that record randomly like a year ago. And he's like, it's so funny listening to it because we were so angry about it. But as you listen to it, it's just death metal. Like it's clearly just like a really <laughs> good death metal album with a lot of double bass. Right. Um, you know, but it was just at the time it was a, uh, it was a very contentious record for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. I, I could see that. I mean, it's just when it's that drastic of a change, cause I feel like you could with, with spiritual, you know, at least it's still, more in that realm, but just felt like a total jumping off once you did get to human with the playing and with the, I mean, just, there's so many different things. I mean, the themes, the lyrics, like everything was just so different. So, I mean, it would have to right. be a shock. And there was also kind of like a lot of, you know, dirty laundry that had been aired, you know, between spiritual healing and uh human and, you know, between the European tour that sort of happened, but Chuck wasn't there and, you oh, know, yeah. Chuck sliding off his bandmates and, you know, <laughs> I also really didn't like the idea that essentially death, you know, it's just Chuck and whoever mm -hmm. it's not, you know, that that's a point where it kind of ceased to be a band in the traditional sense. It wasn't like four guys against the world. It was just Chuck. And then he would just hire people and it was going to be different people all the time. And um, now that's super commonplace and that seems, you know, just like a thing yeah it is one of many approaches to like making music but you know coming from the 
the eighties into the nineties, that was really, really fucking unheard of. And, um, you know, that was also something that I, I guess didn't sit well with me as a fan at first. And then I guess over the years playing in bands and experiencing different lineup changes and people coming and going and, you know, uh, I, I, I've come to empathize with Chuck's <laughs> position a little bit more, you know? Um, yeah. And it, it ended up, you know, working out for him. So, but it was, yeah, it was a lot to kind of take all at once, you know? So, the, yeah. the, that, and then some of the later albums, I didn't really even hear until, you know, much, much later, you know, okay. I wasn't really terribly familiar with them, but you know, I've come to really, really like symbolic. I think that album's a, a fucking, uh, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Like it's, an, it's an amazing record. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's got it's got so many memorable songs. You know, that's the cool thing about that one to me. It's like it's very memorable. It's technical and all that, but so many catchy parts. You know that you can just remember in your head. And yeah, I mean, I think that the you know symbolic really to me, the the thing that's so strong about it is that it's not really like insisting on about it. You know how great it is with all this flashy playing and stuff. It's full of like really you know adept musicality and good musicianship but it, that's not what it's about mm-hmm. it's about good songs whereas individual i feel like you know gene is kind of playing to like outdo sean <laughs> and you know chuck is kind of making sure that everybody knows he's good at guitar yeah um symbolic <laughs> is just more about having really really good songs you know yeah that's a really good point did did you like the sound of perseverance or like control denied? Did you did you ever get into those ones? I like control denied. I'm not wild about the sound of perseverance because I think it would be much better as a control denied record, right? <laughs> which right. is the way it was intended to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, people have asked us in groups. I'm like, oh, are you guys ever gonna like do like a sound of perseverance thing? And I'm like, probably not because I don't know that I consider that a death album in the strictest sense of the word. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It was kind of like a contractual obligation in order to get control denied on nuclear blast, you know, and and it does have some songs that I think are quite good. And it's, you know, certainly has some of Chuck's personal best guitar playing, but it doesn't, you know, it's not really what gets me up in the morning. (laughs) Right, right. I get it. I get it. What? Yeah. I remember we were talking in the past one time about, um, I think we were, we were talking about one of your gruesome albums that had come out and, you were talking about like kind of studying the lyrics to like inform what you did on gruesome, which I thought was really cool and like dedicated, you know? Um, <laughs> and so just as like a summary to that, like what were some of like the big, you know, themes and changes like from scream, you know, on like with the way he was kind of changing what he was talking about. Well, you know, scream buddy gore is clearly mostly about horror movies, you know, evil dead being about, Evil Dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God's being about, you know, City of the Living Dead or Gates to Hell, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, Corn to Pieces being about Cannibal Ferox or Cannibal for Holocaust. And really just sort of sticking to these like late 70s, early 80s, extreme gore kind of movies, which are, you know, all some of my favorites in this genre. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and then Leprosy, you know, you see an attempt to sort of take that same gory death metal sensibility, but sing about real life stuff like born dead is kind of about like famine, uh, left to die as best as I can tell is about either. I think it's about joining the army, right? Cause mm. it's like, you know, you put your life into their hands and die for someone else. But now you're in the real world where pain and death are felt. And then of course you end up getting your legs blown off. All right. hope is lost. It's human life is what it costs, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
but it still has, you know, kind of influences from those horror movie tropes, like primitive ways about the cannibals and stuff like that. And then spiritual healing is more like a current, current events kind of record, you know, like living monstrosity is a song about crack babies that are born deformed, you know, uh, altering the futures about abortion, spiritual healing is about televangelism. Uh, low life is just about how Chuck doesn't like Rick Ross. <laughs> <laughs> So it's very much, you know, kind of like the six o'clock news of, of 1990. Yeah. You know, Killing Spree is kind of about, you know, mass shootings, really. Yeah. Which obviously is very topical yeah. <laughs> to this day. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of those topics really are when we were doing Twisted Prayers, you know, and I was just kind of like going through the spiritual healing lyrics. I was like, wow, it's kind of grim how most of these lyrics are yeah. still, uh, you know. <clears throat> ripped from today's headlines as well. Right. Um, and then really, you know, human becomes more about, it's more internal, you know, it's more psychological and personal. Uh, I think lack of comprehension is kind of about people blaming metal for, you know, kids killing themselves or whatever. Mm. But most of the other stuff, there, there's kind of a, it's more psychological. But Chuck always has this kind of, running theme about personal duality, like flattening of emotions is about somebody internally kind of flatlining while appearing normal, just like forgotten past is kind of about that and killing spree, you know, to the world around. He was a perfect person, but of course then he's going to like murder all these people. So there's a secret face is another one. That's kind of just about, you know, psychological duality. So that's kind of like a running theme throughout the discography, you know, mm-hmm. Um, so the, I mean, those are all kind of things that we try to, you know, touch on in, in gruesome, you know, we did, uh, plenty of songs about horror movies and, you know, even uh, the, on the first album, like psychic twin is about, you know, somebody who has two personalities and one personality is like a murderer and the other has no idea kind of what's going on kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, th- there's a lot of tropes and, and a lot of things that you can kind of, you can see a through line, you know, musically and lyrically, really from at, at least li- lyrically from leprosy all the way through to the end, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Did you like musically speaking, did is the, is there many things you could like or anything you could describe that like uh, that is like a trademark ch- Chuck riff or, you know what I mean, <laughs> like trick that he does or something like that or or not really? No, I, I mean, can describe it, it, it absolutely but. is, you know, um, I, I think. Yeah, basically, Chuck sort of starts with really just a couple of things and his techniques, but they stay there the whole time. Like uh, he kind of always does what what I would call like the Halloween riff, you know, da 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 da. Leprosy, which is da na 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 na. It's just the same kind of. It's a fifth, perfect fifth, and a minor sixth, and he uses that from you know, the first album through sound of perseverance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of like harmonic minor scales where, you know, he kind of, I don't think he was theoretically trained from what I've read and heard, but he's sort of stumbled on this kind of box pattern on the fretboard with uh, dum, da, 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 dum, 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 and zombie ritual. Yeah. That kind of has this like faux Egyptian. That's like what, you know, Americans think Egyptian music. Sounds like. 
um, yeah. you know, you hear like Raiders of Lost Ark kind of shit. And, um, you know, that's something he used from the beginning to the end. One of the important sort of differences, I, I think, tonally is that, you know, in from thrash metal to death metal, I always kind of think of like the thrash progression is like a, it's almost like the smoke on the water, bum, 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 bum. like Master Puppets is that, those intervals, Metal Militia is those intervals, uh, Jesus Saves by Slayer is those intervals, there's tons of Megadeth riffs in those intervals and so on. And then the intervals that that you know Chuck really, really leaned on in the first three albums is instead of the open string, third fret, fifth fret, sixth fret, is the open string, first fret, third fret, fourth fret, which is like the Scream Buddy Gore riff. Like it doesn't really have anything to do with rock at all. And I think that was a key difference. And you know, he certainly didn't invent those intervals or anything. He's not the only person that used them. But he leaned on them really heavily. And then kind of, you know, by spiritual healing, he started experimenting with, you know, these more melodic ideas that would contrast. But then, you know, there's still tons of meat and potatoes, you know, standard Chuck Schuldiner death metal riffs. And then the ratio kind of shifts album by album, you know, like human is still mostly you know chuck's death metal riffs with some really more flamboyant melodies and then by individual there's sort of you know the the proportion kind of changes where there's you know sort of more other stuff and then a bit of the meat and potatoes things that he did early on and um you know it kind of stays that way towards the end but Mm -hmm. You know, you can absolutely. I mean, one of the great things about being a, a, a you know a band trying to write in the vein of death is that the overwhelming majority of the music is written by one person, and you know, one person is going to repeat themselves. Yeah. That's just called having a style. So it's it's easier maybe to zero in on some of the stuff that death does consistently right. than with other bands because it's just one guy fucking writing ninety percent of everything. You know. Yeah. That being said, who do you think like maybe was the most important member to play with death or like that had the most impact or your favorite, whatever, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, in terms of the band's musical development, you know, I think you could certainly point to, to James Murphy coming in around spiritual healing, you know, Mm -hmm. because, you know, up until that time with all the different lineups and all the demos and all the people that played, you know, in the band, which was already quite a list you know, Chuck had always consistently clearly been the best musician in the band, Mm -hmm. you know, um, until James (laughs) Murphy comes along. And personally, I mean, you know, James is one of my favorite guitar players, period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he really elevated the band. And I think he gave Chuck kind of something to, uh, to compete with some real, like, holy shit, I can't let this guy show me up kind of thing because it's the first time that you really hear him stepping out of, you know, with his solos and stuff, stepping out of just playing fast all the time. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm I've, I've been learning the solos for leprosy and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, dude, it's all 16th notes. <laughs> but that's all it is. Uh, Cause when I was doing the spiritual uh, stuff, that made a lot more sense to me. I was just like, da, 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 da. I was like, Oh, here's like a big melody. Like I get it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, James also, you know, James and Rick both had a lot of writing credits on leprosy and spiritual healing. And I think that 
after James left and, you know, Chuck kind of realized that he made this guy's career, he sort of made a conscious effort to maybe not allow future guitar players to have that kind of mm. input, you know? Cause I mean, Paul Masvidal is fucking incredible. Like, I mean, he's just like a mind blowingly good guitar player. And I think he gets like what, three solos or two <laughs> solos right. on human, you know? And I, I think, I really think James and Sean would be the two kind of paradigm shifters, you know, mm. um, because I think not only did they challenge Chuck to, to play better and enable him to write more interesting stuff, you know, they also kind of changed the whole genre, you know, I, listening to spiritual healing now, I mean, it sounds so old school and it's kind of quaint. Um, yeah. But, you know, it really was a game-changing album in a lot of ways. There had never been a death metal album that was that melodic before. And there certainly had never been a death metal album that was chock full of, of excellent guitar solos, like front to back, you know? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So that, that was really, um, you know, that was a revelation. And then Human came out and pushed that even further with the room and the latitude that Sean had to just sort of pour his sound into the band you know that that drumming was like no nothing really anybody had heard you yeah. know bef before then uh, in a death metal album or just really in a extreme metal album whatever you want to call it you know it was miles ahead of of records even like rain of blood or darkness descends that had great drumming performances you know it was so musical and but yet really extreme you know and i mm -hmm. think that that was <clears throat> that just opened it a door and when you have a guy like gene hoagland coming in on the next record being like you know literally saying i was intimidated to come in and play the, on the next death album because of what sean had done yeah i mean that's a pretty that's a pretty strong statement to how important his contribution was you know yeah yeah and that yeah i know i think um god i think i talked to richard christie a long time ago too and i remember him saying the exact same thing like trying to play some of that stuff was just so so damn hard you know and that guy can fucking play too you know right and you know i, I almost feel like uh, on sound of perseverance he's he's playing more to prove that he is in the same league mm -hmm. as gene and sean rather than playing to the song because there's sometimes he's doing stuff that is objectively cool but it's kind of like distracting it's like dude just just play the beat here man <laughs> <laughs> it's wild i don't i don't mind it i actually i actually like fucking love that about it but it is it is so it's right up there man you always are i think that's why i'm always thinking about it because he's just playing his ass off he, he absolutely he's playing <laughs> for his fucking life yeah. you know he's coming in, he knows you know the kind of shoes that he's trying to fill and the comparisons that he's gonna get yeah and uh you know, absolutely you, you know you, you can't think that that didn't inform what he chose to do right like right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, you were talking about playing, you know, James Murphy and his solos and his playing, and that had to be pretty badass because I know you you guys did that Living Monstrosity show a little while ago now, but that had to be pretty yeah, fun to do. Uh, it was crazy. Um, <laughs> it was it was a weird gig, you know, because the first <clears throat> death metal show I ever went to was uh, Death and Devastation in March 1990, which was on the Spiritual Healing Tour. Mm. And, um, I remember my dad, uh, you know, I was 14 <laughs> and my dad took me to the show and he's like, you know, again, me and Cole, the original exam drummer, he dropped us off and he's like, you need to be outside waiting for me at midnight. Um, you know, club was in Oakland and not a particularly good neighborhood. 
And my dad went to go hang out with his buddy or whatever until the, it was done. He's like, and if you're not out here at fucking 12 o'clock, I'm going to leave your fucking ass here. Like, <laughs> I was just the kind of dad <laughs> that my dad was. And so the show ran really late. And it was like, you know, I got my little fucking digital watch. <laughs> it's like, you know, 1150. And I think death finally starts. And, you know, oh, I think we watched the first two songs and I was like, dude, it's 1210. Like my dad's going to fucking murder us. But, you know, the, we, we got to go, you know, like, fuck. <laughs> so we left. And um, I just remember being so sad that I couldn't see the whole show. And then when they came back in October with uh, Pestilence and Carcass, I remember that gig really wow. clearly because it was right before my 15th birthday. And I asked my parents because it was on a weeknight. I said, look, I'm getting good grades. I'm about it's, it's my birthday week. Just let me go to this show. I promise I'll go to school the next day. Like, you know, I was I was still 14. It wasn't like I was like partying or anything. Yeah. I was a good kid, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, OK, you can go to the show. And then Death played and it was Albert Gonzalez from Evil Dead. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> no, I want to see James and Albert's a great guitar player. Like he's incredible, but it was just really disappointing. Yeah. Um, and then to go back, you know, here I am, whatever, 31 years later, and I'm up there playing these songs with, with James and Terry and I'm playing in Chuck's spot. It was just, it was a real kind of full circle moment and it was really surreal and, you know, there's a lot of feeling of like, man, I shouldn't be here. You know, like <laughs> this, this isn't, you know, this isn't for me to do, but it's like somebody, I guess, has to do it um, yeah. with Chuck, obviously not being present. So I was like, I guess, you know, if anybody has to do it, I mean, I'm glad it's it's me. And I feel fortunate that, you know, James and Terry, you know, asked for me to do it and, and trusted me to, to do it. And hell yeah. Yeah, it was, it's, you know, it's, it is kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's cliche to say, but it really is kind of humbling, you know, it's yeah. like, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then you get to do this badass left to rot tour, which is coming up pretty soon. Right. With Terry and Rick and. Yeah. So yeah. Sad. And that was the thing, you know, where, um, I, I met Rick when I did the first, uh, death to all tour. And I remember meeting him in Orlando. I was like, what are you doing in the audience? Like, well, get the fuck out there, man. And he's like, no, 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 it's cool, whatever. And, you know, I think the whole, this, this whole fucking weird uh, death tribute journey that I've been on now for like nine years, um, you know, it started because of, of death to all. And like I said, you know, the band has these sort of separate fan bases and I really, I realized really quickly that Death to All was leaning heavily on one side and not the other. And you know, the fact that you know Eric and and the the, the guys from Sick Drummer who were putting together the early tours, I was like, why aren't you guys hitting up James? Why aren't you hitting up Terry? Why aren't you hitting up Rick? Like, yeah. why? Why aren't you hitting up Chris Ryford for fuck's sake? Yeah. And, um, you know, so Dust and I kind of jokingly said that we were going to take that. Uh, upon ourselves and the, you know, <clears throat> it kind of finally has come to pass over uh, that our original idea was to go out with either, you know, James and Terry or, or Rick and Terry. And now finally we're coming around to like the idea that we had in the first place. So, you know, it's great. And I think I, I'm really excited because I'm going to get to play some of the songs that I always wanted to hear live and I never got to, you know, yeah. Um, like primitive ways is one of my favorites, for example, 
you know, I've never seen death, nor have I seen death all play like uh, Forgotten Past and stuff like that. So I think um, it's going to be really cool to just, you know, and we're very aware that obviously death all is, is still going and we're not, you know, trying to step on their toes in the slightest. We're trying to, you know, cause uh, we're friends with all those guys. And I think what they do is amazing. Um, especially Max. I mean, he's an incredible guitar player, uh, way better than me. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're very much staying in our lane and we're just doing stuff in the first two records. And, um, yeah, it's gonna be really fun. You know, I think people are going to be really happy to see Terry and Rick out there doing it. And then, you know, I'm happy to be there to help them. You know? Oh yeah. No, I can't wait. Yeah. Just bring in a different side of it, which yeah, that's, that's fucking awesome. I mean, I was never there. I've never seen death live, you know? So this kind of shit is just perfect for me to get, at least get something, you know? Right. And you know, I think that's what I really realized when I did that first death all thing, because, you know, I kind of took it for granted. I saw him twice on spiritual. I, I know I saw him on a human at least once. Um, and I saw him again, and I don't even think I really paid that much attention because I wanted to see the support band. And then I think I was trying to like get laid or something. <laughs> and then I saw him on the sound of perseverance. So it's like, you know, I saw death several times, like five or six different times at different points in their career. And, you know, I didn't really think about it, that there's an entire generation of, of fans that came along after Chuck was already gone. Yeah. And, you know, seeing how much the, the material meant to them, you know, it was really moving for me, you know, playing songs that weren't necessarily the ones that I grew up with, like playing like Bite the Pain or, uh, oh my God, why is my Crystal Mountain? Uh, what's the, f oh, Zero Tolerance. Mm -hmm. sure. You know, playing these songs that, that are, are clearly great songs, but they weren't the ones that, you know, I had grown up with and seeing how much they meant to people and how badly people had missed the opportunity, you know, to, to see them, the first time around, it was really, that was like a powerful experience, you know? Yeah. Um, and it kind of made me, made me realize that, you know, I guess I took it for granted, uh, you know, being there for as much of it as, as I was. And, um, you know, so that was a kind of an aha moment. Like, Oh shit. You know, light bulb. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. That's cool. Me. I, I, like I said, I can't wait to see it. So what, when does it start? Like, uh, it's, it's, it's in June, right? It's coming up pretty quick. Yeah. It's, it's in July. Okay. I'll be, um, I'm going to be leaving California at the end of June. I'm driving to Florida. We're actually going to be rehearsing in, in Altamont Springs, which is like where Chuck grew up, mm. uh, you know, at his house or whatever. <laughs> but um, we're rehearsing in the same town, which I think is sort of neat. And then we start in Orlando and then head north. And, um, you know, we have a really, really good uh, support bill. Skeletal Remains is, is a great band from yeah. California. Mortuous is a great band also from California. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, our old guitar player from Exhum, Mike Beams, is... Uh, he has health issues, so he can't tour, but he wrote the entire new Mortuous record. And, you know, I've known Colin and Chad for years. They're from my hometown of San Jose. Didn't you do so, some lyrics on the on the last album for that? Yeah, I, 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 I wrote lyrics for a song on the first record. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the new one, I think, is coming out. It's coming out any time now. I can't remember because they sent me an advance of it like yeah. four months ago. So I've had it for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> But it's great, and um, I, I'm I'm really really excited about about the tour and about the lineup and just you know I'm I'm raring to get out there and and you know play these songs for people. I think it's going to be something that 
you know, it's, it's going to be something kind of unique despite all the, you know, various death things that have been done. I think this is something that people haven't seen and it, that's really cool. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, I can't wait, man. And uh, yeah, thanks again for, for talking, man. I could always talk about death. So appreciate it, man. <laughs> yeah. Cheers, bud. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for thinking of me and hopefully, I don't know if the guys have gotten back to you, but I forwarded you, I forwarded them the email, but I don't, I'm not sure what yeah. has gone yeah, Terry um, hit me up, so hopefully we'll at least we'll get him on here and talk a little awesome. bit, you know, with that era and everything else, man. So And Terry has an incredible memory. Okay, uh, awesome, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I've, you know, punished that guy so many times <laughs> by now. Yeah, he'll be like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we used to go to this restaurant, blah, 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 down the street, and it was this guy that worked there named Jim, and like, he'll fucking like, he'll give you like story after story. He's awesome. Yeah, so. hell yeah. Awesome, man. All right, cool. Well, yeah. Looking forward to the show, man. And uh, yeah, dude, have a good weekend and and talk to you later. All right. Cheers, bud. Thanks, man. Later. aware of death i know you guys tape traded and stuff like that but how did you even come in contact with chuck in the first place you know i was just a part of the tape trading scene we all were a bunch of pen pals just sending each other demos and i can't remember how or who sent me death's demo but it might have been borvoy or something i can't even remember at this point but um i think it was i mean i remember mantis you know and then i remember i can't remember which was the the demo was it infernal death that mm. had zombie ritual and that was like the the demo before scream bloody gore right right um and then i remember just really loving that demo and then it was like or maybe even chuck sent it to me because he was part of the tape trading scene we were all just like 
really into that and just sharing each other's bands and excited about underground music. So I think it was my friend Steve, a mutual friend of kind of, I guess he kind of knew Chuck peripherally. And back then, you know, it was either snail mail or phone calls. So phone numbers would go around. And uh, I think Steve, a friend from here who, who kind of knew Chuck, just gave me his number one day and just was like, you should call him, you know, because he you know, knew I was a fellow guitar player and stuff. And I, I think I just cold called him one day and he answered the phone and either he did or his mom. Right. I mean, it's like a, that first call. I can't even remember because we talked a lot um, after that and just forged a friendship. And I had gone up there and would play guitar with him and sent each other more music. And I told him about Cynic and my stuff. And so we were just like buddies, you know, he was like an older brother in a sense for me. And then I think once he realized that I could actually play and that I was a serious musician, you know, the relationship kind of took a different kind of turn where we, he actually asked me, I think it was when he first parted with Rick Roz after leprosy, kind of in the midst of leprosy, I think he um, had asked me to help with some dates in Mexico. I was still in high school, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and I missed my high school graduation. I remember like the ceremony, you know, whatever, because <laughs> I had to go do this, these shows and it blew my mind to um, get to Mexico and see how big death were because I had no idea, you know, what kind of what was going on with them yeah. really. And but you get to Mexico and they were like, it was like Beatlemania over there, man. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's just crazy fans. And had you done many people. shows with Cynic before that? Oh, yeah. Tons. We had been playing gigs regularly since we were kids. Okay. You know, Cyn- Cynic started so young. So we had done from house parties to venues. And even just last night, I went to a friend's gig here on South Beach um, in Miami Beach, where I am. And we kind of were hanging out at this bar right next to the bar where my friend was playing. And it was literally across the street from the Cameo Theater, which is one of the places that we did our first real big gigs and opened for bands like Dark Angel and mm. like all these. We got I got in with the promoter and he would kind of let us open shows and we did these just different kinds of gigs i mean from the almost i'd say mid 80s you know i mean we were literally like 14 15 years old 16 yeah. you know so that was uh yeah and then I, I i did that show with him and i know i remember eric the greif at the time was his manager and i remember him saying chuck would like you to join the band you know are you interested in and i was so loyal to sean and um cynic that I said, I can't, I can't, I'm doing, this is my baby. Um, and, um, this is what I want to do. So, but it was done in a way that was lovingly, you know, and, um, and with kindness. So I think Chuck just kept me in my back pocket, you know, and, and that was kind of the idea was that I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I just can't commit. Cause really it was like back then now people, I think, will be in four bands and somehow manage it. But um, back then it was like a different headspace, I yeah. think, to just do what I mean. Well, now you could get on the internet and, and trade songs back and forth. Exactly. Back then you probably had to drive to wherever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it makes yeah, sense. Chuck was like four hours north of Miami, 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was a different, yeah, it was a different thing. And as tempting as it was to be in a much more established band, it felt like, you know, I, as an artist and songwriter myself was like, wait, I want to do my thing. I want to do my sound. Yeah. I, you know, you felt more of like session role in that sense with, with Chuck, because it was like his vision, his, his world. And, um, and I totally loved supporting his world and being a part of it, but I just knew I had my own music to write. So we, but he did ended up calling me back. You know, we stayed in touch. He did spiritual healing. I guess they started touring that. And then at some point that was right before everything imploded with the whole situation when I think the whole band kind of imploded and kicked James out and then part of devastation did dates to finish the tour. And it was like that whole scenario. And right, like right before it kind of turned that corner, Chuck, I think right when James was gone, he said, can you go, can you do some dates for me? It was like in Texas or something. And I remember devastation. I think we shared a bus with them. So we, um, we did that and I did those shows. So I had kind of, so, you know, I was kind of connected musically to Chuck through these eras, right? From Mm -hmm. leprosy to spiritual healing. And then of course to human. Um, and I was such a fan. I mean, always a huge fan of Chuck's and his music and scream bloody gore was just like, to me, like such an incredibly catchy death metal. It's like, it was like, pop death metal yeah exactly yep just like such memorable little ditties and these catchy riffs and these cool phrases the way he's you know his vocal phrasing and so it was just really kind of i felt like he was really kind of the top of the 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 food chain there with that that sound it was much more refined you know and polished i mean obviously possessed we're doing some amazing things and other bands but uh, chuck was definitely right there and he had his own niche and his own sound. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it kind of organically led to human. And it was curiously, we were like kind of already active as an underground band. Cynic was releasing demos. I think we had made our 91 demo. Um, I can't remember what month we did that, but that was the demo that led to Focus. The, you know, the Roadrunner kind of, uh, demo you're talking about? Yeah, yeah the okay. Roadrunner demo. And uh, so that really kind of, it was around then, obviously, because that's the same year we made Human, that um, I think I was just in touch with Chuck more often. I knew that he was going through things. And he basically, and I think there's an interview with him on Headbangers Ball or something from back in the day, because I've seen clips of this or people have sent it to me, where he said, you know, I went to my friends right. to help help me out. And those friends were really first me and Steve, who he had a relationship from even further back, going back to his California era of all that, you know, with Chris Reifert and all that stuff. So, so yeah. So then, and I urged Chuck, I think he was like looking for a drummer. I know he had composed a lot of, you know, he probably had half of human demoed before we even got in a room with him but the demos were very crude in the sense that a chuck demo was and i think they put that on one of the reissues they're like literally just a series of riffs rarely vocals on it that would just lead up to like whatever the bridge or the guitar solo section was and his approach to a lot of arrangements 
was like just repeat from there and copy, you know, yeah. paste kind of thing. And um, so the arrangements were very like, just get the first two minutes and then you've got the rest of the song kind of thing. Okay. Just, and um, I think that developed over the years and he started to refine. And even with human, we took that into consideration because we were of the mindset that an arrangement should evolve from the beginning to the end and completely expand and new things should be introduced when you repeat things and things like that. So I think some of that became part of Chuck's language and you started to hear it on records like human where there was like a different harmony or a twist on a section. Yeah. 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 Was he, was he open to some of those ideas then? Like when you guys did bring that kind of stuff up? Yeah, completely. Like, you know, as I said, like his demos were so crude Mm -hmm. that it felt like we, started from scratch by the time we got in the room and I had I had remembered him like you know the drummer thing and I just basically just said you've got to consider Sean you know Sean is um Sean's the man and I don't know that he had ever seen Sean play you know or like I can't remember there being like an audition officially as much as maybe there was just some jam at some point yeah or he had heard enough of our demos maybe to realize like, wow, this guy, this yeah. guy knows what he's doing. But it was like, I thought that was the, when it, to me, it was like the perfect thing because Sean and I had such incredible ch- chemistry that we could now work together and bring what we had already developed in, in the context of cynic into the death sound. Um, and Chuck was, yeah, he was receptive. I, I found that we could push things to a point like we went as far as we could <laughs> and yeah sometimes we'd go too far and he would pull it back i think he was you know had certain parameters in mind mm-hmm. and was always acting as producer in terms of what he saw because i think it had to resonate with his own creative self he couldn't just let these you know crazy <laughs> ripper musicians come in yeah. and change his whole world you know so we kind of brought ourselves to it. And I, you know, Sean, especially foundationally drums being such the whole way that a band feels. I mean, it's literally the, the most important instrument essentially in a rock band in terms of the root of how everything sits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sean was prodigious. And by the time he was playing, it, you know, death human stuff, he was peak powers. Yeah. So it was like he could do whatever he wanted. <laughs> and, <laughs> And he so he played as much as he could and did a lot of expressive things. And I think there's a clip in I can't remember some interview of Sean's that either our friend Phil made that drum talk doc about Sean, where it's like Gene and Thomas from Mashuga talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's like I think it's that or some other clip somewhere where Sean mentions, you know, how he had one point had done this, you know, time signature an odd time signature over a really straight kind of sounding death riff and chuck kind of like didn't understand what to do and sean was like just keep playing what you're playing stay keep keep thinking four four and i you'll be okay and it was like he was showing him how to like not overthink you know what i mean yeah, it's all, yeah. it was almost like what happens a lot of times in in now gent music right you're mm-hmm. kind of superimposing you know, playing over the bar line kind of ideas and stuff. And we were so into all that stuff. So it was, it was, um, it was just cool to see Chuck being willing to like, let that happen and, and take it as far as he could. And and in the end, I think it, you know, it resulted in something really 
cool for death that felt linear it felt like in line with i mean it's if you look at his records there was just this progression and human really kind of had something that was like it made sense yeah, you know what i mean for sure um, and that probably helped too like like you said like it's probably a, a balancing act coming into like an established band and and then trying to figure out like what how much can i add or how you know what's too much exactly. like you said but it probably helped that you were on, a, you know, you guys were friends. You had a, at least an established relationship. You played with them, so you probably could read them a little bit more and, and figure out what totally. you could do. I'm guessing. Oh yeah, I mean that's part of it. I so much of of this kind of thing in a band is built on trust mm-hmm. and and really just like get, keeping egos out of the way, right? And really saying we're all in the best interest of the music. We're here for your for your music to serve these songs and. That was, I think we had established that and he had that trust in us and he felt like he was in really good hands and, and he was really driven by this, like he was, you know, it was a very retaliative record in a sense because he felt so betrayed mm-hmm. by the band that I, and I, I know those guys were just doing what they needed to do. I mean, it was a weird situation. I don't know the whole story, but. I'm sure promoters were yelling. There was money at stake. It was yeah. commitments. People were going to get screwed. They just did what they needed to do, and they were just trying to kind of save face. And um, but of course, it's just such a layered environment that. But Chuck got enraged, and really, it kind of fueled him in a sense. Like he was just like his middle finger to the past in mm-hmm. a sense. Like wait till you hear my new music, kind of thing. And so he had that like. Which is, you know, I, I guess a constructive use of, of anger and rage. He found a way to kind of pour it into a creative process and make a really intense record by his own intuition, knowing to get these guys in, right? You know, yeah, so yeah. Even, I mean, um, could have. Even Terry, I talked to Terry, you know, for the last episode, and he kind of said, he's like, one, one good thing about us doing that was he felt like it maybe it fueled Chuck a little bit. Yeah, to kind of like, you know, light a fire and give him that motivation to do the, to do human, which, Hey, you know, at least something yeah. good came out of, like you said, a good use of that anger. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's very interesting with Sean. When he, when he, when Chuck started seeing what Sean could do and all that and, and, and just his talent with it did like, when did Sean get that good? Like when you guys were playing with cynic, I I've, I'm very familiar with the 91 demo. I'm not as familiar with the other demos, but when did Sean get, you know, that good was, was he pushed during the, the the recording for that album or was he already there yeah you know sean was you know truly anomalous as a as a drummer as a as a child musician that had this background in piano and then went but always wanted to play drums and i think when he went for his first drum lesson you know i mean, you know this the story goes or something that he the teacher had played like a police song, you know, Stuart Copeland was pl- known for playing kind of more complex rhythms. And I've told this story before, but like, it was like he was considered a more sophisticated drummer in a pop context. Like, and Sean said to the teacher first lesson, like, I understand what he's doing kind of thing. I know. And the teacher at that point realized, holy shit, I, I, I don't even know if I can teach you. Like, you know, like he kind of just had this karmic imprint of like, he just understood how drums worked so he was always very advanced in terms of understanding on multiple levels what to do with the instrument and then 
all it took was him woodshedding and practicing to implement like higher and higher levels of technique and sophistication. And so he was to me, you know, as a kid, when I look back all those years, it was like Sean could do anything. I could just hum these grooves. Any idea I had in my head, he could just bust it out. Like it was like nothing mm. to him. So there was no boundaries in terms of musical. Like I never felt confined or limited with him musically. He he just was kind of infinite prowess and right. ability and skills. So and I think because we actually came up together in terms of our musicality. But yeah, I would say by the time 91 human, he was, you know, 20 years old. I think he might have even been 19 when we made the record. But he was like completely just had just done so much of his homework, had such facility from all those years of practicing and all the things that we were doing in the context of Cynic and everything else he was doing because we were he was also cutting demos for people and friends bands and mm. weird side jazz projects and fusion and funk groups i mean he could he was like not just a metal rock guy you know he actually always dipped his toe in other things but um he brought all that into the context of a metal band and especially in the context of a more extreme band like a death it was like whoa what is this what is, <laughs> what is this drummer doing you know where oh, does he yeah. come from I, yeah, I made a joke when we were when we were talking about this album it's like i feel like man i i could have wrote some riffs for this album and between what sean is doing and then even what steve is doing it's like he probably could have made my riffs sound pretty like pretty badass which oh, I, yeah. it's not actually true but i mean you know what i'm saying like the way he added to every riff and would 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 change the songs as they went you know you could hear them just kind of doing things differently as the song would go on and i feel like it, it gives it so much listenability because you go back and you hear different things every time and it just adds exactly. this layer to it that's just amazing yeah that's it and that's just that's what happens when you get higher you know more skilled musicians who are more in service of the music than themselves right they're just like like Sean Malone was like that for me too, the you know the scenic bass player, mm -hmm. just like absolute master, highest level musician, like just genius player who could just I'd hand him a riff idea and he'd hand back you know seven versions of how he could approach it, and it would like each one was completely different, like it would just turn the riff on its head, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I mean, and Reiner used to always joke that Malone made him, him sound better. He was right. like, Malone makes me sound better. So we were all in awe of him as well. So, but yeah, those precedents, you know, you put yourself, unless you're in a more politically driven band, like a punk aesthetic or something where it's not so musicianship based, I do think there's a fine line because you get musicians that overplay, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and over. And Sean always. I think because he had that background from classic rock and real songwriting music that he had that understanding to not overdo it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for like, sure. I mean, it, it's it maybe back then some people were like, that's too busy. But now you listen to those drums and it doesn't compared to a lot of drummers. Now it's, it's not that busy. It's just, he's just doing what's right, you yeah. know, for the part. And so, yeah, it's really, um, it was a really interesting kind of organic flow of events. And I think it really worked out. It was a beautiful thing for Chuck because I think it also opened the door for him moving forward to just like, oh, I can mix this up. 
yeah. I can bring in different musicians and see what they bring to the table and it'll help my my songs evolve or sound like they're evolving to a degree. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. you kind of cuz you're you're changing the entire framework around it. So um so yeah, it's really I think it became it opened that possibility for Chuck and people started to realize, yeah, this is not just like a band band. It's like it's this guy mm, and yeah. his vision. I wanted to ask too uh, w- when you stepped in you know, because you came after James Murphy, who kind of got a lot of credit for that last album with his leads and everything else. Did you, were you thinking about that at all? You know, was there any pressure with that? Oh, no. I mean, I loved James. I mean, all those guys. I think Rick Ross served a really interesting purpose. He was such a whammy bar guy, and he had his, his like that almost Carrie King Slayerish mm-hmm. kind of approach, which, you know, early obituary had that. It was, I feel like there's certain death metal bands to this day that stay true to that aesthetic, maybe push the envelope with it more. But I understand the logic of that, like, because there was a lot of people, especially when Cause of Death came out, they're like, wait, you can't play neoclassical type solos over this stuff. Like, what are <laughs> right. you doing? And I think they said that maybe with spiritual healing. But I thought James was great. And I I thought what he was doing was really cool. And I loved hearing a more melodic bent to to such brutal music and spiritual healing was such a weird record in how it was produced to me it was so cool it was so dry right the vocals mm-hmm. were so in your face it was like barely any effects or something you know it was just like god that voice is just like right here um but yeah i thought james was fantastic and i I never really viewed it as a competition, Mm -hmm. dude. I mean, I was such a different player and coming from a different background that I, I thought, you know, I was just excited to participate and, and be able to do my thing in the context of, of, of these types of songs. Which, I mean, Um, then that first song when it kicks in, I mean, flattening emotions, that solo that you do on that one. I mean, that's such a great solo to me because I mean, I guess you really know when it's a good solo, when it gets stuck in your head, you know, instead of just being that part of the song that has to be there. And whenever yours kicks in and it just kind of flies off, you know, I, I love that. Like, how, how did that one come together? Did you did you p- p- spend much time on that or, or what was the story with that? Yeah, I mean, for me, like a lot of these solos, you know, and this is the cu- true for Cynic and a lot of projects is that I do, I generally just improvise over the I, you know, I learn whatever the chord progression or the changes are. And, and with death music, it's often very chromatic as well. A lot of these half steppy kind of death riffs. So you have to pay attention, right? It's like, oh, wait, it's G sharp, not G here mm. kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know. But I would just improvise ideas and then kind of almost like see what felt best. It's like a matter of like trial and error over and over and over. You just keep playing and playing and okay, I've got the first 10 seconds. Now, where's this going from here? And one of my tricks was I would draw often, I haven't done this in a while, but I would draw like on a piece of paper, like a line, like almost like a graph or a shape in terms of what I wanted the the solo to sound like, Mm. you know, like, like almost like giving it a visual aesthetic just to kind of, okay, it's going to peak here and then it's going to drop down and go into something more spacious. And then maybe like with more like, you know, holding notes out and then a, a busier passage and it would, it would look like a scribbly line and then it'd open, <laughs> it makes a long line. Yeah. And so that was like one of the things I used to do. And so it's like a combination of that kind of stuff along with actually just 
playing it over and over and kind of little by little finding the sections as as it came along and then you kind of get this overall arrangement for the solo and then it kind of i finesse it i just play it until i it's like you just fine tune it and get get the get you what i mean make it feel really natural and but um but yeah that's kind of been my approach for years unless it's just like a quick improvisational thing because there's a lot of moments on cynic records where it was just like that was a one take and i was i left it kind of thing and um and just let it be even though it maybe wasn't perfect and there may have been a little bit of stuff technique wise that i felt like insecure about i was just like I don't think I can capture that energy again. I have to just leave that alone. Right. right. And um, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just kind of, but yeah, that was a really cool, you know, it was, that was so, it was always fun soloing over death songs, especially by the time we did human, because I really, I felt comfortable too, as a soloist and doing, you know, kind of doing things that I knew had my own weird hybridized sounds. Right. (laughs) I was like, Oh, cool. I can do this weird stuff over Chuck's more straight rhythms and stuff. You yeah. Know? yeah. So. Oh, yeah. It adds so much. They want new, one that i was super curious about is uh cosmic sea which you know that's the one that just to me sounds the most cynic you know to, to put it mm-hmm. in, a, in a bad term but you know it's so different from anything death had done and i mean it stands out in the album and it's such a special track on the album to me because it it does really get so much more expansive i mean how did that one come together for you guys well that song really was i mean it's like a, one of those things that we had a break in the studio we had time actually what it was i think was that we suddenly found ourselves with time because sean when we booked uh, the studio for for human they gave like sean a week to cut drums it was like and which was incredible because we never even you know we'd we'd cut drums in a day for things you know it was just oh, like wow. sean would just have but it was like wow we get a week we felt like we were really spoiled and Sean cut all his drums, I think, in like two days or something for human. And yeah, it was just like all just happened fast. I mean, Sean had this ability to just turn that on and nail nail takes like he was just, you know, he just had that kind of mastery. He could just execute and concentrate and just nail it. And and so we were suddenly found ourselves with all this extra time at some point, you know, towards the end of after we started cutting bass and guitars and and it was like oh what do we do we've got all this and it was like oh let's do an instrumental so chuck was like started i think he was in the background at some point developing something and it turned into this song that got written essentially in the studio 
and became like like so i think i just literally had like this is your solo section this is chuck's solo section now we're gonna trade off at the end you know mm -hmm. we did that kind of with the reverse weird sounds and but um so it just kind of happened like it was really a result of having spare time i think human may have ended up being a seven song album if if uh if sean hadn't cut his drum so fast right. or maybe chuck had another idea up his sleeve but it's such a unique song. I mean, did Chuck have any like reservations? Like, oh, this is too out there, you know? Because I know, like you said, he usually kind of wrote in that, in that, um, you know, more standard, you know, verse, yeah. verse chord, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, this was such a departure, you know? Right. Yeah. Maybe that was just like, you know, a lot of input from us, just like opening things up and having that bass breakdown moment and. Yeah. Do what I mean? And then that whole sound design thing that we did with one of the guys at Morris Sound. And it was just like, I think, you know, even the title Cosmic Sea, I'll tell you, came, I could swear to you, it came from, I used to, I was really into like, at the time, a lot of Hindu philosophy stuff. And I was reading a lot of, besides the Bhagavad Gita and the books of the Mahabharata and all that, I was into like a, one of the guys that brought a lot of that stuff to the West. And his name was Paramahansa Yogananda. And he, um, I would have these little books of his, like these little kind of manual booklets that would just like be one of his Dharma talks essentially about some point of view. And I, there was a book called Cosmic Sea. Mm. And cause I even used it in a lyric of a cynic song called I'm But A Wave To. So I swear like that was around and I, I'm, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, of course he picked that up from seeing that. You know what I mean? It <laughs> yeah. was like, and so I think it was in some ways also a nod to like, look, I've got these killer musicians. Like, why don't I take advantage and do an instrumental for the first time? Right. You know, like I can really stretch out and, and take a break from a vocal song. So I think he had the, the, the confidence to actually do an instrumental, which probably wasn't that common back then either in, the, in that context no. of, of that music. So. Yeah, there's a lot of factors to consider there, but um, it was a pretty cool, spontaneous thing that happened in the studio. And yeah, for me, mo the mute, the solo is probably the most emotional solo. You know, it feels very like from the heart. Mm -hmm. You know, like it just has a, it just yeah, it feels to me like I'm I'm really saying something very heart driven. It's so it kind of reached into something nice for me that um i can't even put into words yeah. really you know yeah no yeah. I, I totally get it it makes sense so at that point you know i know you guys that was you guys still had cynic that was your baby you're going back to that how much and i mean maybe it didn't at all you know i would think in some way like how how much did that time with death you know whether it was recording the album or you know touring or any of that kind of stuff like how much did that color the songwriting for focus like did it impact that in some way yeah, I mean, first off, I would say if you hear the Cynic 91 demo, like, you know, that was me at like when I finally like found my voice and lost it as a growler. I was like mm. I was somewhere between, you know, Schuldiner and Becerra, you know, <laughs> like yeah, that yeah, was yeah. like like it was finally I was like, I got the sound I wanted, you know, and um, but then I destroyed my <laughs> voice because I was just really belting and I didn't have that like control and. I didn't have that like thing that a lot of those growlers have that just they just have this interesting way of finding a technique to do it without destroying your voice. I just didn't. It was not meant to be yeah, for me. Yeah. But I think like obviously and then I got Tony, you know, to growl on the record and Tony I knew from Epitaph and 
the reason why I loved his voice and I always loved those old school tardy, that range of that kind of voice was my favorite to this day mm-hmm. in terms of a death metal growl. I just love that with the long notes and just like, you know, I remember what's his name from Morgoth had that sound. Oh, yeah, there yeah. was a bunch of people. And, um, you know, obviously hearing tardy for the first time back in the day was just like, whoa, okay, this is next level, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just insane. But, um, so I think vocally for sure, like there was always that like reference point, you know, and I think it was rooted in Becerra and Chuck in terms of like, I love that vocal style. And I think Tony had that sound like maybe a slightly witchier, you know, but Mm -hmm. just really right on the edge of just perfect balanced brutality and absolute control. And he also like Tony was interesting and especially on focus in that he like, he sang from the heart. I mean, he literally would like touch his heart and like, while, you know, I was showing him the lyrics and just belting in the studio, like he really came from a different place than like rage, Mm. you know, it was Mm -hmm. like more just like, uh, you know, it's like heart driven growls. It's such hard a, to explain such that a perfect really, fit too. Yeah. For that. For focus. Yeah. I mean, that's really the sound and from where he was like, what do you, cause the words he was saying, he wasn't singing about things that you had to be pissed about. He was, it was like spiritual topics and meditation and things, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I think the vocal sound definitely has that root in, in the death influence and inspiration and just being around Chuck and hearing him, Sing so intimately in the studio and knowing that it always like had an impression on me and, and played a big role. And then there was just a certain stylism in Death's music that you can hear, you know, to this day in some of Cynic's riffs, which is this just that 16th note, digga, 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 you know, like we just sometimes will ours will be probably a more complex thing, but it's like that space is there and it's it definitely was rooted in a sound that I think death kind of really kind of developed and became signature. So there's like moments I think in Cynic's music where you can go, there's a kind of deathy death vibe, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it was always weirdly layered or something or some other th- component that would go, go on that would make it different, but I can hear it. I don't know if anybody else can, <laughs> but I'm like, Oh yeah, that's definitely a little death vibe right there. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's definitely that kind of played a role. And it was probably, as a, again, as a result of being in such close proximity, first being a fan and then being around him and actually participating on a record, it felt like we were just honoring a lineage, right, mm-hmm. that we were a part of. Yeah. So I don't want to take too much of your time here. I mean, I could <laughs> I could go into, we could talk about Cynic forever. I'd love to get into some of your, I know some of your spirituality stuff and all that. I've listened to other interviews and it's just all. Yeah, maybe we could do another chat yeah. on the Cynic thing sometime. That's what I was going to sure. say. Maybe, you know, you got the reissue coming out. And yeah, next year, maybe totally. we can get back in touch so you can, you know, we can talk straight up about just Cynic and all that other stuff because, you know, I, I love Focus. I love Cynic. So, um, so just be awesome. awesome. Okay. So, well, uh, like, I said, I, like I said, I really appreciate it, you know, all the, giving us some extra contacts and info and awesome, you know, so maybe we can, uh, maybe we can do it again, get into Cynic and all that stuff, you know, for sure, Jason, excited for that chatting with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a full full remix from the ground up and it's sounding so fierce and intense. I'm so excited about it. It's like really cool. It's kind of pushing it into a, a whole new realm. That's awesome. So, yeah. Cool. Well, good luck but, with finishing um, it, man. 
Thank you, man, and good luck with. I uh, hope you feel better yeah. or get some rest and <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, whatever you need. And um, yeah, we'll be in touch. Hit me up whenever, man. Like that that reissue thing won't come out till probably sometime in the middle, and even maybe next summer or fall. You okay, know? it's like we're we're almost a year off at this point, so right, right. We got plenty of time, but Perfect. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great to chat with you again. Awesome, man. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. You too, brother. Take right. care, Jason. 